Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, the proposition for today is that how you think about a situation, how you feel about the situation, and ultimately how you interact with people, how you behave, in other words, starts with being driven by how you're thinking. So we wanted to take this part. So it pays attention to the data that you see, the pieces that you confusing data and judgment. Ultimately, all of your actions are acting on your beliefs and feelings and sometimes leaving you out of control and sense of out of control. So our job today is to understand how this process works and how it impacts things like confidence and anxiety and stress and optimism and being agreeable or disagreeable and, well, just about everything that matters as a leader. So my guest today is Stephen Garvey. He's an international speaker, an expert on persuasion and influence, and the founder of a boutique consulting firm, Solutions in Mind. He works with corporations and audiences around the world to solve difficult communication problems by in guiding them on an engaging, fast-paced, fascinating journey inside the unconscious mind. The book that we're talking about today, it's a Wall Street Journal number one bestseller, Ignite a Shift, Engaging Minds, Guiding Emotions, and Driving Behavior. And you can find out more at his website, solutionsinmind.com. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. I'm excited to engage in conversation with you. I am too. I can't wait. This is exciting. If you understand how many times I talk to people about persuasion, any other tools are going to be just really powerful. But let me start at the top, Stephen. Why are you so passionate about this topic? What's the problem you see that we need to tackle? I think one of the biggest problems that we see is people relying on the intent of the communication rather than acknowledging the impact that it's having. So we'll say things like, oh, they weren't listening. They took that the wrong way. They misunderstood me, as opposed to really self-reflecting and saying, how could I have communicated that more effectively in order to get the outcome or the response that I actually intended? And so I think that's one of the big things with both ourselves and with others. Okay, that is so easy. I mean, I love the phrase, we rely on the intent versus the impact. I'm going to steal that one. It's a really good one. I'll give you credit, but I'm going to steal it from you. Um, But unpack that a little bit for people who haven't thought about this deeply. I believe my intentions are good. Why can't other people see that my intentions are good? Why are they giving me the benefit of the doubt? It's it's a good question. I think one of the things that that is useful to assume is that people have the best of intentions. And if we assume that they have the best of intentions, we can rethink the framing that we place on, on what we're assuming the meaning to be. So someone communicates in a certain way. I'll give you an example off the top of my head. Uh, an HR person that we were dealing with a few years ago, she uh, decided that rather than interrupting people first thing in the morning, because she was one of those early people that got in, she thought she'll just put a little post-it note on their computer screen so when they have a few minutes, they can loop back with her. And people, most people were okay with it, but a few people got upset that she didn't care enough to take the time to come and talk to them personally. 
And so, again, her intention was to give them time in the morning to get settled into their day. And their interpretation of that behavior was she doesn't care enough to take the time to come personally chat to me. So I think if we assume the best of intention, it allows us to challenge our own framing and to think, what frame can I place on this that's more empowering or how, how am I framing this that potentially is less empowering for me? So I think those are, are good things to think about. Um, it reminds me of somebody I've been working with who is trying to persuade some leaders in an organization to go through a transformational change. Not an unusual thing at this moment in time, and leaders are being a little slow to adopt. And so, you know, with the best of intention, pushing them to adopt because it's urgent. Time is sensitive. You know, the, there's lost things for the organization without moving. At the same time, that's not being seen as positive. It's being seen as having an agenda and having to do it his way or no way. So anyway, I think we see that all the time, the intention versus impact. Okay, so come to, I did this opening statement. Thinking impacts emotion, which impacts behavior. Explain how that all works. So I can actually give you an example, and your listeners can test this right where they are. Um, anxiety in the last three years with COVID and things being outside of our control and, uh, you know, regulations and restrictions and all kinds of different things, people's stress level or their anxiety was higher than what was useful for them in a lot of cases. And so one of the things I found in private practice over the last 20 years when getting referrals with people that had anxiety, I started to detect a pattern that they were doing the same thing over and over and over again, regardless of uh, their culture, regardless of what their background was. Whenever they were experiencing anxiety above what was useful for them, here's what they were doing. And, and here's my definition. Let's start with that. And your users can actually, your listeners can actually test this out. Anxi I always say anxiety is an emotion of the future that we can only experience in the now by imagining something that hasn't happened yet turning out in a way that we don't want it to. And if we imagine something in the future that hasn't happened turning out in a way that we don't want it to, I can almost guarantee you it's going to trigger anxiety in the now. And it's interesting because people do this on a regular basis and then they talk about their anxiety like it's their, you know, pet animal that they've got to feed as opposed to recognizing this is a cognitive pattern that you're running. It's a way that you're imagining things. It's the way you're running your brain that's then creating this state. So that's what I mean by our thinking impacts our emotions, which drives our behavior because it's that thinking, that anticipation of something turning out in a way that I don't want it to, that triggers the emotion or the state of anxiety in the now. And then that drives a range of different behaviors. All right. So anxiety is on, a, see if I got this right, an emotion of the future that we experience in the now, where we're imagining something happening in the future that doesn't go the way we want it to happen. Exactly. In, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you one more time, just so listeners, again, yeah. can literally test this out. Anxiety is an emotion of the future that you can literally only experience in the now by imagining something that hasn't happened yet turning out in a way that you don't want it to. And consistently, and, and I've spoken to a room full of psychiatrists, and it's like an aha moment. They're like, that's exactly what people do. So they imagine what happens if they laugh at me, if I'm going to go speak? What happens if someone right. asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? What happens if, and we do all these what happens ifs in a negative way as opposed to a positive way. 
Okay. Now I know tons of people who would say, yes, but that anticipating what can go wrong allows me to prepare for and to manage what might happen in a little bit better way. What's your response to that? I agree 100% as long as you focus on where you net out being a positive outcome. So you can anticipate what could go sideways, what could go wrong, what questions could I ask? And I do believe that's a really good way of preparing or moving our brains, our imaginations into the future as a way of preparing and anticipating. I think the key is where do I net out and where do I land? What do I, what's the bulk of my focus anticipating or netting out on? And that's what triggers the anxiety. Okay, so if I'm letting out on the negative side, then I'm going to have more anxiety. Now, I know some people that think that anxiety is a fuel for them. That, you know, if I'm anxious, then I'm going to be at my best performance. Yeah. Um, I, I always say to people, how do you define anxiety versus excitement? And aside from the label, what's the physical state? How is it different? How is excitement any different than anxiety, any different than than fear of something, you know, in, in a normal context, not fear of a tiger that's in front of you, but fear of speaking or fear of, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And I think for, for most people, it's what they have that label connected to. So I always tell people, hey, just think of it as excitement. And that gives you that rush or that adrenaline to perform at your peak. So I always tell people it's when anxiety is above what's useful for you, according to you. So yes, some people thrive on it and it gives them that edge. It gives them that drive. It gives them that energy. And I I think the key is, is it useful or is it beyond or higher than what's useful for you? All right. I love that. So uh, you've now given me two ways to understand that how we think about it is driving how we feel about it and therefore what we do. Okay. So you give me the example of anxiety is I'm thinking about something that's going to happen in the future and I'm have a feeling about it now, but it's something that hasn't even happened. And I'm imagining it's going the wrong way. That, that whole thing is how I'm thinking, but so is whether I call it anxiety or excitement. That's how I'm thinking about my preparation, my anticipation. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So thinking drives emotion, which drives behavior. All right. So how do we get control of this thinking? What do we do about this? And so I think what happens with people is they get into habits of thought. And rather than evaluating how they're thinking and how they could think differently, they get into habits of thinking without thinking about their thinking. And so I always challenge people to be reflective and think about your thinking. So you could, again, you can ask your, your listeners, you know, when you think of a vacation and think of that memory, is that memory black and white or color? Is it near or far? Is there a sound or no sound? Is it moving or a still picture? And so these subcomponents of memory of the way we store and code things impacts how we feel about it. So if we're dealing with things like post-traumatic stress or trauma or a range of different things like that, how someone's coding it actually gets their nervous system reacting to it. So if someone's reflecting on something that happened in the past, they're imagining it happening again, or they're recalling the memory from the past, and they're rerunning it fully associated into it, it's going to re-trigger that negative emotion in the now, as though they're re-experiencing it. Whereas if we get their brain to recode how they've got that memory stored, it can actually neutralize the emotional effect of it, therefore changing how they react. So we can't erase the memory per se. I mean, I shouldn't say that there is such a thing as amnesia, but in, in general, we're not really changing the memory. We're changing the way the memory is coded, therefore changing the emotional reaction to it. All right. 
So I have a negative experience. Uh, they laughed at me. I was ineffective in my presentation, unpersuasive. They asked questions I couldn't answer. I'm imagining that it's going to happen again. Yeah. And that causes a behavior. All right. So you say change the way it's coding. I can't change the fact that whatever I did in that last presentation didn't go well. That's Absolutely. there. How do I change the coding? I think the number one thing is to focus on what you learned from the experience and how you can apply those learnings in future, similar future contexts. So for example, I can think of how I could respond to that question in the future. What did I learn from that person asking me that question? And then I can imagine successfully answering that question at a future point in time. That recodes that experience in the nervous system. And now what I'm imagining is a future experience going successfully based on what I learned from that past experience that I could conclude didn't go that well. Okay. Okay. So it's really, what, what did I learn from that? So it's focusing on the learning and then imagining myself doing it better. Now, I'm sure you deal with a ton of people who do this, Stephen, but I swear my clients, we start down this path of what did you learn? And they can list what they learned. So what are you going to do next? Okay, we got the thing, what are we going to do next? And they trip themselves right back into the, but what if it goes wrong and I'm going to fail and I can't, they, they just recycle, like they can't get control of that coding. What's your advice? So, so notice what you just came up with there were a few questions. Um, what could go wrong? Why didn't I do it right? Et cetera, et cetera. And questions are fascinating for me because if we look at the origin of the word, it's questio, which means to seek. So when we ask ourselves or someone else a question, we literally engage the imagination and send it on a quest or in a direction. So if I say, why am I always forgetting? Or why didn't I know the answer to that question? Or any other range of questions that send the brain in a negative direction, the brain's just gonna respond to the quality of the question that we ask. So <laughs> if, if we're not aware of core questions that are running as habits and patterns in our mind, and all we're aware then of is the searches that we send our brain on and the imagination fills with a bunch of nonsense when we're in charge of the direction that we send our thoughts and our imagination based on the quality of those questions. All right. So what question do I, I love that, questio, meaning to seek, we're sending our brain on a mission Absolutely. to respond to a question that was already negatively framed. So it's going in searching of a negative answer accordingly. Okay. Um. I know we think we're smarter than that, but I promise you we're not <laughs> as human beings. That is how your brain works. So what better question instead of what am I going to do when I can't answer it again, answer the question again? What other I'll, questions would work? I'll, I'll give you an example. What, one of the things we, we do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry, and we always look at questions and how do physicians communicate with patients. And one of the things that occurs regularly is um, you know, compliance, adherence compliance problems with taking medication. So a physician may ask a patient, why do you forget to take your medication? Well, all that does is send their brain on a quest to justify forgetfulness. Well, because uh, you know it, it's downstairs and I start my day upstairs, because I get distracted by phone calls, because, and all we're getting is a story and, and a, an entire um, defense of forgetfulness. A much better question to ask would be, out of curiosity, what would make it easy for you to remember to take your medication? Now notice the quest that I've sent the patient's brain on. I sent the brain on a quest to, to think of what would make it easy to remember. 
Now they're going to respond to me with regards to what would make it easy to remember. Now I can say, and why does that make it easy to remember? And why, in, in fact, in my book, we have a chapter called The Paradox of Why. If we ask why in the wrong context, we're simply going down rabbit holes. If we miss the opportunity to ask why in the right context, I always refer to it as your watering can. We can plant seeds in people's minds, and then we can ask the why question and water them. So if a patient says, well, it would make it easier to remember if I placed it by my toothbrush, then I there's my watering can opportunity. Why does that make it much easier to remember? And notice the much amplifies the memory. So I can say, why does that make it much e so much easier to remember? And now I'm installing that it's so much easier to remember, and I'm getting their brain searching for a why and growing that story around remembering. So really, the intention again behind it is not that the doctor wants the patient to forget. It's the intention behind it is the doctor wants the patient to be compliant and adherent, but the impact of their question is having the opposite to, uh, effect of what they want. Yeah. I think I remember some research on dentists asking very similar questions of their patients. And instead of saying, why don't you floss? Ask, when do you floss? Yeah. yeah. You know, when what is floss? it? Then it yeah. It would make it easy for you to remember to floss. What do you yeah. think the benefits of flossing are? So again, back to that leadership comment you made earlier, a lot of times leaders push agendas and create a sense of urgency without building a why behind it, a story behind it. So it's like, follow my lead, do what I'm telling you to do. And trust me, it has to be done. And we need a sense of urgency as opposed to creating a story or a narrative around the why that allows the audience to connect to it. So one of my favorite quotes in the context of how do we get people to care about something they don't yet care about? It's to connect it to something they already care about. So I've got to understand the people that I'm leading, what do they care about? What do they value and why do they value it? Then I can connect what I'm wanting them to accomplish with something they already care about, which can then create a greater sense of urgency. All right. Give me an example. This sounds like a fascinating way to persuade people to have a sense of urgency, to take accountability, to step ahead with an agenda. All right. Give me an example. I think storytelling, stories are one of the, the most powerful ways to communicate data and messages. In fact, we just got back from England last week working with a, um, a global team there of market access individuals that are used to using data and slides to attempt to convince someone of something. And what we did was we taught them to tell or create a narrative, then pick the slides or the data that supports the narrative. And here's one of the things that we've discovered over the years um, Wanda, that if we communicate data or facts or information in a way that conflicts with someone's story, they will distort the facts to fit in with their existing story. So essentially, the story is the filter through which the facts are given meaning. So if we get the story moving in the right direction, then we pull out the facts and the data, we can then actually prime the brain to interpret the facts and data in the most relevant way, as opposed to attempting to logically convince them with just facts and data. And I think Steve Jobs did a brilliant job of this. And, uh, you know, he was one of the founders of Pixar Animation, Pixar Films. And I think if we look at the blockbuster hit after hit that Pixar had, there's an actual formula for creating narrative that makes it sticky. Wow. All right. The gem that you dropped in that is that if we tell, we present data that conflicts with the story people have, yeah. then they will distort their memory of the data to be consistent with the story they already have. 
Absolutely. And we see it regularly where one person thinks this means A, the other person thinks it means something completely different. And we're looking at the same information. So how is that possible? I mean, you and I were having a quick chat before we got on the recording about how fascinating it is the way the brain filters and codes information. It's true. And as we were saying, I started my research career looking at people's perceptions of shades of gray. You would think that perceptions of light and dark is pretty accurate. And I can tell you my entire dissertation and publication in that work was around proving that it is not, that I can distort it dramatically by what I do. And that's the story you're going to tell yourself about what's happening there. And off we go. And we're looking at patches of gray. <laughs> if we do it with our visual system, just imagine what we do it on the rest way. All right. So this notion of starting the narrative, what's the narrative? What's a story I want people to understand? And then where's the data I'm going to plug in or the slides I plug in to tell that story? Okay. So let's say I'm standing up in front of a group of people and I want to persuade them that um, you know, changing a process that is well ingrained and well known is urgent and going to lead to stronger business performance and something we have to do now, in spite of how messy it is, how complicated, how hard for everybody. How how would I do that? Can you can you model what this story and data looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Based on the on the Pixar format, and in fact, we think it's important enough that we dedicated a chapter in the book to the structure of story and narrative. And I think part of it is taking the listener back to a point in time, once upon a time is the Pixar format. So it could be, you know, when the when we first started the company, it could be when we first embarked in the emerging markets, it could be whatever that point in time at the beginning of what is relevant to your audience. So right. Pixar uses once upon a time when we deal with obviously with scientists, we give them a few alternative ways of communicating that once upon a time. So it's really back to the beginning of whatever is most relevant to the story and to your audience. And then every day. So every day, what happened? Every day we followed this process blindly. Um, every day, what, what was going on every day that was just kind of routine that occurred on a regular basis? Um, then uh, one day, so what was that pivotal point? One day we realized that this process could be improved. Because of that, um, and then we start doing some research. And what the research uh, it, it taught us is, and now I can put up some data, some research that supports, and notice what we've done is take them from the beginning of what's relative, relevant, taken through every day what we did, what happened, um, and one day something changed, something, something, there was a pivotal point to this story. And because of that, what happened? Because of that, what happened? Until finally... And there's essentially your Pixar format in a really easy to follow um, step-by-step guided approach. Uh, Follow the steps, plug in the information, and then pull out the data that supports the storyline. Okay. I have read dozens of books on story. I've done research on stories. I know as human beings, we remember stories. We don't remember the facts and data. You just said why we'll distort the facts for the story we have in our head. And I've read tons of people who say, here's the format of a story. And that that is most insightful perspective on it I've heard among everybody. So I just have to repeat it because this is really powerful. I can't even take credit for it because it's it's Pixar's format. So Emma Coates was one of the Pixar storytelling artists. And she decided to investigate 
why is Pixar having blockbuster hit after blockbuster hit after blockbuster hit? So she set out to find and discover the DNA of the blockbuster hit. And what she found was every single one of these blockbuster Pixar hits followed this same structure for storytelling. And okay. so she distilled it into these steps. And then we sort of modified the format so that it's less of a, you know, a children's storytelling format. I followed exactly the same process, but but reworded the steps so that a scientist can understand, hey, here's how I follow this easy format to take this data and to turn it into narrative. All right. Now, as a psychologist, I'm going to tell you why each of those points are important for persuasion, but I'm going to avoid that one. Let me get back to what the process is. So everybody gets it one more time. So the story is the following structure. Number one, back to a point in time, as in when we first launched this process back in 1995. Absolutely. Every day on a regular basis, we would repeat this process, gather the data, verify every day, every month, every quarter, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Until one day we realized that the data had changed. I'm making yeah. this up as I go. There's a pivotal moment. And then because of that realization, we yeah. went to do the research to see if we were accurate. Yeah. By the way, here's the data to back it up. And then because of that, we went to do another piece of data. And because of that, we went to do another piece of data. I believe in the power of three. Yeah. Right? Until finally, we have discovered that a change in the process is going to get us much closer to where we want to be. Absolutely. And and okay. we can build an urgency to that. We can have, and I love your power of three. I always recommend people ask three clarifying questions as a habit. Um, always, people always say, well, how many because of that do we have? Well, it could be because of that, which resulted in, which led to. It could be any of those things. It has exactly the same effect. It carries the storyline forward and shows connection to these things. And then it creates an outcome at the end, which is the, the realization that, hey, it, this all makes sense, right? Right from the beginning, all the way through to where we are at the end. And then I can go and decide what is that data? How do I then frame that data? How do I prime the brain in the context of that data? So before I pull this slide up, what stands out for most people as highly relevant is, and I could highlight a few things or point out a few things. So right. I can literally prime the brain prior to even pulling out the data. Okay. All right. Very interesting. I suspect if you applied this analogy to TED Talks or TEDx Talks, some of the best ones would follow a very similar strategy. Um, I would suspect that they would. I'm not, I, I confess, Sorry, I'm not, not huge TEDx person, um, just because at timing, I'm just so busy with so many different things. I tend to read a lot. Um, but the ones that I have looked at follow, to the best of my recollection, a similar format. That's right. Once upon a time when I was, you sort of typically start with something about yourself and that's your once upon a time. Yeah. Okay. I love that one. So we were on this path about how do I begin to change my mind? All right, so first changing my own thinking. And you said, to change my own thinking so that I'm not seeing it as anxiety, I'm seeing it as excitement. I'm recoding it. I'm telling myself a different story about it. And you said, focus on the questions you're asking. Mm -hmm. That if you ask a question that sends your brain on the quest for a negative answer, it will come back with negative answers. What's going to go wrong? If I send my brain on a quest for a positive answer, it will come back with positive answers. And you gave me the example of what would help you to recognize to take your medicine. 
And why would that be so much better? Again, reinforcing the why is that positive, that those are the ways of training your brain. And then you said the way of training other people to think differently is to tell a narrative and to fit the data to the narrative. To get all that straight? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I think we've just packed in a ton in that example, because I think if anybody followed that, they would start to say, wow, I see this. I see this. Okay. I got to ask you one more question before we take a break. And that is, so the whole point is thinking drives emotion, which drives behavior. Explain to me how this changes the feelings that are associated just because I'm sending my brain on a different quest, or is there more to it than that? I think there's more to it than that. There's also the physiology. How am I breathing? How am I standing? Um, how am I, uh, you know, holding my frame? Uh, I've never seen a depressed person sitting with their shoulders back and breathing deeply. Um, there's a there's a, a physiology or or a, a gestures that go along with depression. They're usually looking down. They're slouched over. They're breathing shallow. So I, I think along with shifting our mental uh, components uh, and how we're focusing mentally, the cognitive side. We can also shift our physiology. So you you take somebody who's feeling down, they go for a walk, they feel better after a walk. You get them to do some exercise, go to the gym, whatever it happens to be, it changes our state. So I think shifting our physiology and our breathing also changes our state. So confidence is a, is a good one. Um, you know, when I used to coach a lot of teenagers that would come in and the parents would say, oh, they, they want more confidence. And we treat it as though it's something we can go buy in the grocery store. And it, it doesn't exist as a thing. It's, it exists as a process, right? So I, I would get people to stand up. And, you know, if 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 you said zero is no confidence, 10 is the most confident you've ever felt, what number are you at? And they would give me a number. And I'd say, well, if you were going to increase that number and you were going to feel more confident, how would you breathe differently? What would you focus on as an outcome? If you were going to feel less confident, how would you breathe differently? How would you stand differently? Or would you be standing? Maybe you'd be sitting. Um, What do you need to focus on as an outcome? Or what do you have to imagine happening? So you can actually take someone and you can lower their confidence. You can raise their confidence in the moment, within two, three minutes. And I think that the the empowering part of that is it gets people to take ownership and accountability for, hey, if I want to be more confident, I can run my brain in a way that generates an increase in confidence. I can stand and breathe and 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 smile. I can do different things with my physical body and I can increase my confidence and, and reverse to that. I can decrease it if I want. And when you give someone that gift, they walk out of your office feeling more empowered, as I'm sure you all know, uh, as a psychologist, it's it's so much of it is between our ears. And it's also within our power to shift how we're moving, how we're thinking, how we're breathing, and, and all those other things. Yeah, I think about a group of this is going to reinforce your story all the way. It's a group of women that I have been working with for quite a while and who struggle with confidence. And their biggest number one concern is people are going to judge me. All right. Already saying the judging, I'm telling my brain a negative story about what's going to happen sometime into the future and about how people might be thinking about me before they've even seen me or thought about it or whatever. And you can watch when they say that their their body language just caves in on itself. You know, they look down, they turn in, they don't make eye contact. All the stuff that we know signals confidence just vanishes. And it's all driven by that thinking. All right. It's amazing. You've probably heard over the last number of years, power stances or power poses have become popular. You know, what's that power pose that you can take 
prior to going on stage or prior to giving a presentation that that sort of is anchored or connected to that state of confidence. And so I, I think you're right. I mean, when I hear judging, uh, you know, they're going to judge me. What, what does that mean to that person? And what are they imagining? What does judging mean to them? Like what, what and what's the difference between judging versus appreciating or valuing? So even just getting them to challenge the their own meaning that they're attaching to certain things. And, you know, back to what we said earlier, to think about their own thinking and what are they anticipating as a result? Great. All right. So change the label. We're back to that. We're back to about if you send your brain on a quest for they're going to judge me something negative, then it's going to return the negative feelings. Absolutely. Change that quest. They don't know me yet. How are they going to think about me? What are they going to be curious about me is another way of framing that, I think, at least in this situation. All right, Stephen, fascinating discussion. I know now why people say fast-paced, high-impact, great fun conversation. So my guest today is Stephen McGarvey. The book we're talking about is Ignite a Shift, Engaging Minds, Guiding Emotions, and Driving Behavior. You can learn more at solutionsinmind.com. When we come back, we're going to take a couple of more steps in this in terms of talking about how to disagree without being disagreeable and a little bit more on how to be persuasive. We'll be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Stephen McGarvey. The book that we're talking about that I now am in love with is called Ignite a Shift. And again, if you want to find more about Stephen and the work that he does or the book or his blogs or any of that, go to solutionsinmind.com. 
All right. Now, I don't know if I can summarize all the tips that have been just relayed in the first half, but let me just hit a couple of my highlights for the moment. The notion is when I think about something in a negative frame, I am sending my brain on a quest for finding supporting data, supporting story, supporting analysis to reinforce that negative perspective. That's going to make me feel worse. And that's going to let me not have the most impact I want to have with my behaviors. It's a simple matter of catching what my thinking is about, starting to reflect that thinking and shifting it. So I may say I'm anxious about how I'm feeling anxiety about how the outcome of this meeting is going to go. And I could shift that to say, I am excited to see how this meeting is going to go. And yes, I'm preparing for questions that might be difficult to answer. So I'm thinking about it, but I'm not anticipating it going wrong. So anxiety is anticipating, is experiencing emotion in the now about something that hasn't yet happened and expecting that that thing in the future is going to be negative or not come out my way. I did a bad job, Stephen, of giving your exact definition, but I hope I've gotten the intention. And I think the big, brilliant insight for us as individuals and for anybody trying to persuade others is to recognize that everybody has their story in their own head about how things are working or why things are working. If I give you data that's inconsistent with that story, then people will distort the data or discount the data or refute the data to hang on to the story they already have. So to be persuasive, I want to tell them a story that changes the story in their head. And the format for that one straight from Pixar is start with back at a point in time, like when we first started. Every day we did some particular actions. And then one day we discovered something. And then because of that, we did some research data and did some more research data. And because of that, did some more research data. And finally, we've come to a conclusion, a resolution. You've given people a story to understand the new data that you're presenting and the way you're presenting it. Okay. And then the last piece of all of this, I think, is recognizing that what you do with your body impacts your feeling. It's not just what's the thoughts in your head, it's the physiology of what you do with your body. And part of the reason things like power poses have made such a difference in people's presentation of self. All right, Stephen, how did I do? Wanda, that was exceptional. You're hired. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fantastic. Let's talk about this notion of how do you disagree without being disagreeable? I think everybody is like, tell me, tell me, tell me. It's it's one of my favorite things because it's so simple. And, and I'll tell you why. People use that word but habitually. Yes, but. I agree with you, but. Interesting that you say that, but. And that but essentially negates everything that went before it. So I, I think one of the ways to agree without or disagree without being disagreeable is to use a conjunction like a simple one like and. And I always say just swap out same three letters, same same number of letters, I should say. Swap out the but with an and. And that's interesting that you say that, Wanda. And another thing worth evaluating is. And another thing worth considering is. And another thought that might be worth contemplating is. So I can basically take your idea and shape it and move it in a direction as opposed to the but, which discounts and negates your idea. And so I think one of the key things that we can do to disagree without being disagreeable is to actually accept someone's idea as it is. And then if I disagree with it, 
I can shape it and form it and move it in a new direction while still giving that, that giving them that experience that I'm acknowledging that this is their current perspective, their current idea. Um, right. Whereas if I use that, but it basically says, hey, what I'm saying is so much more important than what you just said. And it basically throws everything you said out the window. I use this phrase all the time when I'm talking about defensiveness. So I believe that when you say the word, but yes, I heard you, but you have now moved yourself into defensive space. And now we're going to argue back and forth. We're not going to get anywhere with it. Also, when you're giving feedback, the common thing is, let me tell you, Stephen, all the wonderful things that you've done incredibly well, but... Yeah. Here's the one thing I want you to work on, which completely negates everything you said. And the person is going, Ugh. so you that's dropping that butt from language would be a really useful strategy. And you give me a third reason for doing it. <laughs> and and it's so it, it all it takes, Wanda, is a little bit of practice. It's that whole idea of, you know, unconscious incompetence, uh, conscious competence, etc. We want to make it conscious competence. So we want to encourage those around us to call us on it. So if they hear us using but call us out on it. And when we become consciously aware, we can then intentionally change it and do that often enough. And it becomes unconscious competence where it just becomes a new habit and it comes, becomes automatic. Okay. And then, so conscious leads to intentional change. Yeah. And telling people you want to make a change, calling each other out on it, having a buddy system around it, counting the number of times somebody said, but in a conversation all of those are really effective strategies for making you consciously aware of how many times you said it. Okay. We even had one parent once put a jar in the house. Um, uh-huh. Anytime the kids caught her using try or but, uh, because try presupposes failure. Um, they, anytime they caught her using try or but or any of their siblings, they had to put a quarter in the jar. And then they got to collectively decide what that jar of quarters was going to be used for. So anything that turns it into a game that makes it a safe environment for us to hold each other accountable, uh, that's how we create new habits. Right. All right. Fantastic. Try. Try presupposes failure. I happen to believe that. But why do you say that? I I think my experience has shown me, like if I said, Wanda, I'll try to be on that podcast (laughs) It doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence <laughs> that I'm actually going to be there. If I said, I'll try to remember to call you. It's so in, in general, unless it's try as in partake of food, like taste something. If And, and I do a demo sometimes with a, a room if they if they disagree with the try thing. I'll say, okay, here's a pen. Try to catch it. And then they catch it. And I said, no, I didn't say catch it. I said, try to catch it. So then they miss it. And I say, well, I didn't say miss it. I said, try to catch it. And so it, it's like you either do or you don't. Um, so I think try is one of those words that we habitually use, uh, even from a leadership perspective. When I hear leaders saying what we're trying to accomplish is, uh, they're just installing doubt in the context of their audience. Whereas if I said what we're working toward accomplishing is and the next step is, and notice I can build that right into that storyline that we talked about with the Pixar uh, format. Right, right. I love that. I often um, quote Yoda, which must have come somewhere from somewhere else, you know, there is no try, do or do not. And I'm often saying it because people will say, I'm going to try that. There's no conviction in it. Yeah. There's no, um, well, I've given myself an excuse if I don't, because I tried and I couldn't, as opposed to, no, I am convicted that I'm going to do that. I, I think you're right. All right. What other words do you have that are helpful for being uh, more p- impactful and for being more disagreeable without with disagreeing without being disagreeable. 
So a, a couple of things that I think are important in this bigger picture conversation are getting used to charging our language with emotional words. So I always tell people that there are universal away froms and universal towards as far as emotions are concerned. So if I said you can avoid the frustration of X by doing Y, um, there's nobody and any audience I've ever said, look, frustration's on sale today. I'll give it to you for 50% off. Anybody yeah. want more frustration? Uh, well, I'll reduce it. I'll give it away for free. You're not going to get any takers. Nobody wants more frustration in their life. So if I can tell them that they can eliminate the frustration of X, Y, Z, whatever it happens to be, by doing this thing that I want them to do, it builds in exponential motivation behind the scenes at an unconscious level. So I always tell people when it comes to persuading and influencing, we want to recognize that there's conscious level things that we do. And there's also unconscious or outside of conscious awareness things that we can do. And one of those things are these emotional words. So nobody wants to be uh, have their time wasted. Nobody wants more frustration. Nobody wants disappointment. Nobody wants. And I usually give people a, a, a priming list and then get them to make up a bunch more. So what other lists can you come up with of emotions that you can build into your story that encourage people to move in directions, either what they want to avoid, eliminate and prevent, or what they want to gain and accomplish and achieve. So people want more certainty, more security, more happiness, more conviction, more. And again, I get the audience to come up with a list of both the negative ones and the positive ones. And then how do I build some of that into my story if I'm creating a narrative or even just into a conversation with a teenager or a spouse? Um, I say to people all the time that emotion is where people are persuaded, that Absolutely. the facts are not the persuasion. The facts are the justification after they've been persuaded, but that the emotions are where the persuasion happens. If my clients ever start to fully believe me, I will be out of a job, but I think there's no <laughs> chance of that one anytime soon. And people don't know how to put emotional language in because it seems awkward in a business environment that's focused on facts and data and analytical decisions to put emotions in. So you just gave me an example to put emotional words in that we can avoid negative emotions by doing something or we can gain positive emotions by doing something. So can you put that in like a whole story example to show me where it fits and how it fits? <laughs> a whole story. Um, sure. <laughs> Let's give it a shot off the top of my head. So if I said to a, a child, um, well, let's like, pick something else, an adult, it doesn't really matter. If I said, uh, let's go to the park because I can assure you, you'll feel better after taking a walk, right? There's, okay. there's nobody doesn't want to be reassured or assured. And there, there's nobody doesn't want to feel better after doing something. So notice just that small little narrative, that small little instruction or metaphor or, or invite to go on a walk. I could say, oh, let's go on a walk. That, that, that's, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. Yeah. It's, it's boring, right? It sounds like work. Whereas if I said, let's go on a walk together, I can assure you that breathing in that fresh air will make you feel better and hearing the birds singing this time of year and enjoying the spring as, as we take a walk down by the lake. So I can create a mini story. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be just a mini little thing that builds in some benefit. Uh, you can avoid feeling that sense of despair by going on a walk. I can reassure you it'll make you feel better. So notice you can avoid that sense of despair if that happens to be their current state. And I can say, let's do this behavior. And here's why. Because I can reassure you that you'll feel much better afterward. 
So okay. again, a couple of quick examples of just avoiding the negative, moving toward the positive, okay. and how we can practice just building in some of that language. Right. All right. If I go back to the Pixar story formula that we did at the very beginning, and I'm going to go back to my process that I'm trying to persuade people to change the process. And way back in 1995, when we launched this initial process, we were hoping to achieve blah, 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 blah. Every day we did, or every month we did the following steps. In the beginning, I might say those steps were satisfying because they seemed to save time. Yeah. But every day, as we did this more and more and more, people became more frustrated with the time that was involved. Okay, so I'm sort of putting in the emotional reactions in the midst of the story that I'm telling. And because of that, we went, we realized this change in emotions, we went to collect some data to analyze how much time it was actually taking and ta-da-da. And because of that, we did this experiment. And because of that, we checked something else. And as a result, we now know that doing this new process is going to make people feel more satisfied, save time, and whatever else. Yeah. And notice all you're doing is taking essentially that same format, essentially that same narrative that we talked about earlier. And now you're adding another layer, uh, which creates an increased compulsion to comply with the request of the story, because now I've got emotional reasons. And I totally agree, Wanda, with what you said earlier. I always tell people that decisions are based on emotion and then justified with logic. And it it sounds like you've been (laughs) preaching the same sermon for a long time as well. And go ahead. I was going to say, I I think science is pretty solidly behind that notion, too. (laughs) So, Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing how people still, especially when you're dealing with scientists, they think it's it's logic, it's data, it's science, it's it's we follow the scientific method. And and I said, well, why do you follow the scientific method? Well, because I believe or because I'm convinced, because I'm convicted. They they get back to emotions. Those emotions are just outside of their awareness. Yeah. Yeah, right. So we generate hypotheses and then test the hypotheses. The hypotheses come from our emotional worldview, thinking, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that we've been talking about. And then if I don't get the results I want, I keep trying it in a different way, in a different way, in a different way. We, <laughs> that's what we do until I get the data that confirms what I already believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We and, and we all, kinds, all kinds of confirmation bias and all kinds of other biases. In fact, I'm always amazed they seem to make up new names for biases. They just kind of make them up left, right, and center. If you look up various <laughs> cognitive biases, uh, I think the list gets longer every year. People just make up new biases. At one point, there were 63 of them that were documented by research, and I believe we're now over 70. I don't know how far we've gone since, and I haven't checked it in a couple of years, but you're right. There's a lot of them in ways in which our brains are using shortcuts to reach a decision, and all of those are fraught with our own interpretations as along the way. All right, any other tips on, do you have tips on how to say no without feeling bad about it? Absolutely. And in fact, we we do a whole exercise all, along this line. Uh, we, we talk about agreeing in principle and restating our purpose. So agreeing in principle um, is different than agreeing with someone. So if you said to me, uh, Stephen, can you cut my lawn for me this weekend? I could agree in principle and say, Wanda, I realize you'd like me to cut your lawn this weekend. And unfortunately, my schedule's full. You'll have to find someone else to do it. Oh, but Stephen, uh, we had a great conversation in the podcast. I thought we really hit it off. Can you please cut my lawn this weekend? Wanda, I realized we had a great conversation and that you'd like your lawn cut this weekend. 
it's important that you find someone else to do that because my schedule's full this weekend. So it's it's really saying, how do I agree in principle with the person without agreeing with them? And then what's the boundary that I want to state no around? What What's that boundary I want to hold firm on? And then how do I restate that boundary over and over again? And really, it involves listening skills because I've just got to listen to however the person's attempting to guilt me into doing what they want. And I've got to agree in principle that that's what they'd like to have happen or that's what they believe. Um, and then I can restate my boundary. And right. so I think the first thing is getting clear on how to agree in principle. And, and that that's a skill that just takes a little bit of practice. And we teach this to parents. We teach this to executives for negotiating. And, and it's actually a lot of fun. We, we taught... Um, a, a group of clinics that do like cosmetic, like Botox and different things like that. And they would say, well, you know, clients will come in or, and, and they want to use coupons that are out of date. And so right. how do we hold firm on the fact that the coupon needs to be used in the date that, that's on the coupon? And so we did an exercise with this and had a ton of fun with it. And they were amazed at how easy it is to do when you understand how to agree in principle and when you're crystal clear on what that boundary is that you're that you're holding firm on. Right. I can imagine this is a lot easier to do with a peer and a little more difficult to do with a boss. But a peer comes and says, why can you do this task for this project, blah, blah, blah. And I could say, look, I know you need help. However, I can't because I have another looming deadline or whatever. I hold my my boundary on what my driving purpose is. I can just see ways in which that works. All right, Stephen, we're like a minute and a half left. I have to ask my favorite question. What takes you out of your comfort zone and how do you get through it? it it's funny, Wanda, that you asked that because whenever I saw you had a PhD in psychology and whenever I looked at some of your questions and we're basically having a conversation, I, I never know what's going to get asked of me. And I, I think in our, our pre-conversation, I said, as long as it's within my wheelhouse of expertise, but even doing a call like this, it takes me out of my comfort zone, but I thrive on it because as long as I'm holding true to who I am and giving honest and sincere responses based on my experience and my depth of expertise, um, then I'm, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. In, in other words, not knowing what that last question was going to be or not knowing <laughs> what direction you were going to go in. Um, and I, I think that it also comes from, you know, trusting the person that you're having the dialogue with. So yeah. I, I think, you know, having failed grade two when I was a kid being told I was learning disabled, I, I think I just learned to thrive outside of my comfort zone because my comfort zone was so small, <laughs> I get comfortable outside of it. <laughs> I love that. So that narrowing back down to be true to who you are, to what you know, to where your specialty is, where you're going to add value is my language, not yours. And recognizing that I'm going to be uncomfortable, but it's okay being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a stretch. It's growth. It's learning. And so again, back to how we frame things. If I if I go uncomfortable equals bad, well, what if uncomfortable equals good? Um, <laughs> how does uncomfortable equal good? Well, it 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 makes me faster to reply to questions that get asked to me if I'm not sure what the question is going to be. Uh, it makes me think outside of the box if somebody like you asked me a question that nobody's asked me before. And so there's so many different ways to frame uh, discomfort in a way that is more comfortable. And right. I think that's one of the key things. I think that's awesome. My guest today, Stephen, we are out of time. Stephen McGarvey, the book that we've been talking about, Ignite a Shift, Engaging Minds, Guiding Emotions, Driving Behavior. You can find more about Stephen at solutionsinmind.com. I think this is, if anybody wants to know anything about how to persuade, 
how to tell a story, how to deal with your own anxiety and nervousness, how to boost your confidence, how to disagree, how to say no. I don't think you can get a better resource than Stephen's book. Stephen, what a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. An absolute pleasure, Wanda. Thank you. All right. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.